it seems to me that every Christian at some point in their life wrestles with their faith. And it goes something like this. Why do I believe in Jesus while others who have heard the same message that I did do not believe? How is it that I have come to believe when other people have not? Am I a fool for believing? Or are they the fools for not believing? You know, even children have questions like this because when children are brought up in a Christian home, attending church, surrounded by Christians, it's very easy for them to conclude that the unbelievers lack the intelligence to believe. Uh, but the situation looks very different once they leave home and meet brilliant people that are not believers. You know, they may go off to universities and, and meet professors that are obviously intelligent but do not believe. Or they may rub shoulders with professionals, competent, excellent in what they do, intelligent, well-learned, but do not believe. And then the situation looks very different to them at that point. And then they might, and many do, conclude that they were dumb for ever believing in Jesus. And whether you are young or old, it's really the reality that we see leaders and influential people who do not believe. And surely, these extraordinary people know better, and clearly they're managing just fine without Jesus. They actually and certainly want us to think that, don't they? That they know better and that they are managing life just fine without Jesus. And maybe uh, that is the reason why so many evangelicals perk up their ears whenever a professional athlete or celebrity shows even the slightest hint of being a Christian. And then they put them on a pedestal and parade them around like spiritual heroes, hoping to show the world that Christianity is respectable. Or maybe they were trying to convince themselves of that too. But you know, if, if celebrity endorsement brings you to Christ, celebrity boycott will lead you away from Christ. And so we need something deeper and something more real. And that brings us this morning to something that is deeper and something that is real, which is Scripture leads us to Christ. Scripture leads us to Christ. Because, you see, we cannot have a meaningful conversation about who is right and who is wrong until we first have an accurate assessment of sin's damages. And that is why scriptures must be preached. And that is why Paul and Barnabas embarked on their first missionary journey from Antioch of Syria. They first went to Cyprus, then to Perga in Pamphylia, and from there they went to Antioch in Pisidia in the region of Galatia. 
And there, Paul went to the synagogue and he preached. And not surprisingly, Paul's sermon in Galatia touches upon many of the themes that he will develop in his letter to the Galatians, which he will send shortly. And so we have seen, we have noticed as we read through Paul's sermon in the synagogue, here he already speaks of Jesus' death on the cross. He focuses on sin. He focuses on faith. He talks about justification. He talks about the law. And he talks about the grace of God. These things must be preached because this is the only way we can get an accurate assessment of what sin has done. And this is the only way that we can even begin to answer the question, who is right and who is wrong? And notice that uh, Paul concludes his sermon in verses 38 and 39. Through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, those of you who read along with me in the ESV, in the English Standard Version, you notice that it says that by him, everyone who believes is freed. So ESV uses the verb freed. And it's following a long tradition of other English translations who, uh, that put it in a similar fashion. Everyone who believes is freed. And I take it that that the word, the verb freed is being used in the sense of having freedom from sin's powers and in the sense of being released from the obligation that sinners have before God. Uh, but uh, you may have no also noticed that the verb freed has a little footnote in some of your Bibles. And it was said that in the Greek, the verb is justified, dikaiao. And that Greek word is usually translated justified. And as you know, it is actually the very heart of Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he focuses so much on the justification of the sinner by grace and by faith. And so it is my humble assessment that that. This verse really ought to have been translated. Everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, it may be that the people who translated the ESV and other, other versions that put it similarly probably had a good reason for doing so, but I wasn't there, and I don't know why, but... The, the important thing for us to know is that given what Paul is preaching here is so close to the, the letter to the Galatians where justification is really the center, it's really helpful for us to understand what Paul is really talking about here is justification of the sinner before God. Why? Because sin Sin is a problem. And what is sin? Sin is that stubborn refusal and failure 
to live according to God's law. And this refusal and failure to live according to God's law actually comes from fallen man's heart that is alienated from God. And of that we read from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. And what's so important in, in, in Paul's sermon is that Paul surveys the long history of Israel's constant failure, rebellion, and idolatry before God. And so Israel's long history of disobedience serves as an unimpeachable witness against anyone who thinks that the problem of sin is light and against anyone who thinks that the problem of sin can be managed. Because you see, our alienation from God and our guilt before Him, that is a problem that cannot be solved any other way than by the justification of sinner that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is why when Paul preaches uh, in the synagogue, he, goes, he surveys the long history of Israel's failures, all to show people that their only hope and salvation is in Jesus Christ who died and rose. We trust in the death of Jesus Christ as the sin-atoning sacrifice for our sins. We trust in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to sinners. And that is why Paul says that, that by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And what Paul is getting at is this. If you ever come to God and ask God to, to assess you and judge you on, on the basis or on, uh, according to the quality of life that you have lived, you know, God is actually a very kind God. Whatever you ask Him, He will give it to you. And if you come to God and say, God, judge me according to my life, then He will do just that. And then the verdict will be not so much that you have lived a life that is pretty good, with a few exceptions here and there. But if you ask God to judge you on the, on the basis of the kind of life that you have lived, on the basis of the quality of your life, then the law of God is going to expose you as having utterly and completely failed at every turn. That is why when we come to God, for the people of Israel, they trusted in the law of Moses. For others, it may be, you know, I've tried to live a good life, and I think I've done pretty well. And if you come to God with that mindset, then you are simply going to be exposed as naked and filthy before God. But Jesus, Jesus presents us to God as righteous, justified, being in the right relationship to God's law because we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus in his sin-atoning death and the gift of righteousness 
that comes to us through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection that saves us from God's wrath and judgment. That is why Paul is always so careful to preach the scriptures because it is the scriptures that must lead us to Christ. And if the scriptures will not lead us to Christ, nothing will and nothing can. And that brings us to the warning to scoffers, the warning given to scoffers. Notice how Paul ends his sermon with the warning, and that warning is taken from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5. There the Lord warned uh, people, the people of Israel who were scoffing at the prophet's words of coming judgment. And so Habakkuk says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. So the Old Testament prophet's warning to the Old Testament people was that you, you are scoffing at God's word and you will pay for your scoffing attitude. You need to humble yourself and believe what the Lord is saying to you, but you are mocking God's word. You are scoffing. And indeed, they kept on mocking God's word. They kept on scoffing, and they faced the judgments of exile. And now Paul takes that warning, and he applies it to those who heard his preaching of Jesus Christ. And this warning is very well chosen and applied to those who heard his gospel preaching. Because in verse 43 we read, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So the immediate aftermath of Paul's preaching that some people actually paid attention to what Paul was saying from the scriptures and they came to believe. Now how they came to believe, remember I asked the question earlier, how is it that I have come to believe when others don't? Because you see plainly that not everyone had the same reaction to Paul's preaching. Some came to believe, and how they came to believe will be explained shortly. But first, Luke tells tells us of the scoffing response from many people who heard Paul's preaching. Because the very following week in verse 45, a great number of people were gathered to listen to Paul. And the Jews, they saw the crowds, They were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And then we also read in verse 50 that the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their city. And Paul makes plain the reason behind their scoffing attitude and their unbelief in verse 46. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And what that tells us is that faith in Jesus 
is not decided by intellect. But faith in Jesus is, this is a matter of the heart. You see, these people who responded to the word of God with scoffing attitude, they made a conscious decision to reject the gospel's teaching about their sin and about the Savior. And they judged the eternal life that Jesus offers them to be beneath them. And the leaders, the influential people, they happily joined the cause of suppressing the gospel. Now, isn't it interesting? Then, as today, you know, the world is enamored with leading citizens, important people, the VIPs, or if you want to put it this way, the influencers of today. You know, people who have great number of followers on social media. And they want you to know, they want you to think that they know better than you. They want you to listen to what they are saying as if it is the very word of God. And they're trying to convince you, you know, away with this nonsense of Orthodox Christianity, away with this nonsense of biblical ethics, away with this message of salvation being only found in Jesus Christ. Because they are, then as now, the, the leading people, the, lead, the influencers are always joining the cause of suppressing the gospel. Unbelief is scoffing at God. But notice how God warns the scoffers. Because when God offers forgiveness as a gift, think about this, loved ones. When God offers forgiveness as a gift, how great is the sin of mocking that grace? And when God promises reconciliation with him, and when God offers eternal life, how great is the wickedness when one chooses to remain enemies and chooses death. So when the Lord proclaims the good news, He also commands you, He also calls you to believe. And so that is the warning to scoffers. An old Puritan preacher, and I forget who, summarized the gospel ministry in such a beautiful and succinct way. He said that the work of the preacher is to afflict the comforted and to comfort the afflicted. And I think that's very well put. Gospel preaching must afflict those who are comfortable in their own righteousness, in their own merits, those who are comfortable without God's grace. But the gospel ministry also comforts those who are afflicted, those who are hard-pressed and beat down with the burdens of sin and the weight of the world. And that's what Paul does. He, he carefully works through the entire Old Testament. Now you realize what Luke records for us is mere and a very brief summary, which we can read through in about three minutes of time. No doubt, Paul spent a lot more time working through these passages. And then later in Acts, we, we read that Paul's a sermon, at least on one occasion, lasted all night. 
Um, and so I think that gives us a sense, one, that uh, you don't have it as hard <laughs> as the early Christians did. And secondly, it was Paul's and early Christians' habit to carefully work through scriptures, taking their time to do so in order to afflict the comforted and to comfort the afflicted. And so from scriptures, Paul proclaimed, and after proclaiming the gospel, he warned the scoffers. And lastly, that brings us to the meaning of faith, the meaning of faith. Now, if you remember in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph, they bring infant Jesus to the temple to do for him what was required by the law. And Simeon was an old saint who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he takes one look at Jesus and he is made aware that this is the Lord's salvation. And he says, now, Lord, you let your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And then he addresses Mary and Joseph and he's, as Simeon says of Jesus, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And that's exactly what is happening here, isn't it? Because Paul went to the synagogue of the Jews and he preached to those who trace their physical lineage to Abraham, the man of faith. But many Jews who, having heard the scriptures explained to them, proved themselves not to be the children of Abraham, the man of faith. They may have had Abraham's blood and DNA in their bodies, but they did not have Abraham's faith in their heart, and in opposing the gospel and rejecting Jesus, they show themselves to be not part of the true Israel. But many Gentiles believed, and in believing, they demonstrated that they, although physically they did not descend from Abraham, the man of faith, in their heart was faith like Abraham, and that they were the true heirs of Abraham. And the Gentiles believed, and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And that answers the question, doesn't it? Why is it? that I have come to believe when others have not? Why is it that two people can hear the same passage of Scripture explained to them by the same preacher at the same time, in the same room, and one person responds with faith and the other person responds with mocking and scoffing attitude? Why is it that two babies, uh, twins as a matter of fact, born to same parents at the same time. Um, I am, of course, talking about Jacob and Esau. 
Why is it the two babies, twins, born to same parents at the same time, raised in the same household, one becomes a true heir of Abraham, the man of faith, while the other, Esau, rejects God's grace? And this answers that for us, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Because this is what faith means. Faith is the outworking of God's election. Faith is the evidence of God's saving grace. In other words, God does not choose us because we believe. God chose us, and therefore, we believe. Do you see that, loved ones? God, in his unsearchable wisdom and grace, mercy, he has appointed from the beginnings, even before the creation of the world, those he has set apart for himself in his Son. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, they received the gift and the grace of faith. And faith is not what causes God to accept and love us, but it is the outworking of God's love for us, and it is the evidence of God's electing grace. And what that means is, on the one hand, that we cannot give ourselves the glory or praise for believing. We should never think that the unbelievers simply lack the intelligence to believe. Certainly not the case. I have met too many unbelievers who are just brilliant, far more intelligent than I'll ever be, yet do not know the Lord. But, you know, if we frame the question as, you know, they just are not smart enough, you're actually taking the glory and credit for yourself, aren't you? It's because I'm so smart <laughs> that I cracked the code. But that's not the case. We cannot take credit, the praise, the glory for our salvation. We believe because God, because God in His grace, ordained our salvation, and so we give God the glory. And on the other hand, there is wonderful comfort to be had knowing this. Our faith is not the reason God loves us, but it is the evidence that God loves us. So think in this way. If faith, if your faith, if my faith is the cause and the reason for God's love towards us, then only perfect faith can give us peace. If it is our faith that brings out God's love towards us, what happens when your faith is shaken? What happens when our faith is struggling? Then, if God's love were to depend on our faith, we could never be certain of God's love when our faith is weak and struggling. But faith, whether it is big or small, 
and God apportions to each as he sees fit. But faith, whether it is big or small, comes from God's love. And because of that, we are assured that even the smallest beginnings of faith, though it is often troubled and though it is often weak, even the smallest beginnings of faith is rooted in God's great love. And even the smallest faith, however it struggles and however it falters, even the smallest and the weakest faith receives the whole Savior. That's God's grace. Not that if you have big faith, you get a bigger portion of Jesus, and if you have small faith, you only get a tiny little bit of Jesus, but even the smallest, the weakest, and most frail faith receives the whole powerful Savior. And know this, loved ones, that even a struggling faith is precious to God. Even a struggling faith is precious to God because it is a faith that holds on to His Son. And so let me ask you, loved ones, are you, are you troubled by your weak and struggling faith? And I have no doubt that you are because we all go through experiences like that in our life. And it bothers you, doesn't it? That your faith is not yet what it ought to be or what it should be given. You know, it's embarrassing to admit, but I've been a Christian for close to 40 years. And when I look at myself, I am not the Christian that I should be. Given the years that, that I have been nurtured and been fed, I ought to be a much better Christian than I am now. And it's frustrating. Sometimes that's even heartbreaking. But remember, even when your faith is weak, Jesus is strong. And Jesus, he chose you. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your grace, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we, we cling to him with our faith, faith which is often weak, which often stumbles. And yet we rejoice that your grace is such that we, when we are at our weakest and most frailest moment, we can turn to you and receive your grace whole and full. So we come to you, Lord, and we pray that you would once again minister to us in our weakness and in our frailty. Make us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his unchanging and his unfading love for us. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.